You're listening to Beyond the Clinic, Living Well with Melanoma, a podcast produced by Aim at Melanoma, the foundation working to end melanoma. Hosted by the Director of Cancer Survivorship for Kaiser Permanente San Francisco, Dr. Raymond Liu. Beyond the Clinic features topics seldom discussed in the exam room, but essential to patients and their families during and beyond treatment. The purpose of this podcast is to educate and to inform. It is not a substitute for professional medical care and is not intended for use in the diagnosis or treatment of individual conditions. Guests on this podcast express their own opinions, experiences, and conclusions. The mention of any product, service, organization, activity, or therapy should not be construed as an aim at melanoma endorsement. Cancer research discussed in this podcast is ongoing, so the data described here may change as research progresses. Welcome back to AIM Melanoma's Beyond the Clinic podcast series. In this episode, we'll be uncovering aspects of caregiving with two very special guests, international care advocate Donna Thompson and Dr. Zachary White, associate professor at Queen's University of Charlotte and founder of the caregiver blog and resources, unpreparedcaregiver.com. Together, they've written a book called The Unexpected Journey of Caring, The Transformation from Loved One to Caregiver. We'll talk about the book and learn about the different roles that caregivers play and offer some novel concepts like the caregiver resume. Welcome, Donna and Zach, to the program. Thank you so much. Great to be here. Great. So, you know, I was so struck by the book in terms of, you know, how you get, you opened it, we're really talking about caregiving as not being a choice because of course that's, that's true. You know, some, you're just thrown into it. So I wanted to sort of ask you how, how you came up with that concept and, and a little bit more about that. Zachary, this is your area. You're an expert in this. <laughs> well, I think that it is first and foremost, all informal familial based caregiving is based on pre-existing relationships. That is, we have a variety of different relationships with people, whether that's a spouse a child, a parent for whom we care about and love and have a very defined kind of relational existence for much of our lives. And then all of a sudden, there's a different component added into that mix. And so that pre-existing relationship is bound up with ongoing love as it was before, but the roles that we inhabit and the ways we interact with that person change when it's not necessarily, as you say, a choice. It is a requirement of, of love. It is a necessity. It's something we want to do. At the same time, it complicates. And Donna and I talk a lot about sometimes threatens our identities, the ways in which we have come to understand who that person is and how we relate with that person. You know, if you think about something like spousal caregiving, it's such a challenging experience because people want to care for their spouse and they love them, but the necessity of care begets a kind of complicated set of boundaries that are both invisible and visible and requires us to rewrite the relationship scripts that we had previously that made so much sense. Yeah, I think you, you mentioned things like you know, privacy, romance. I mean, we're, we're in a prior role, it may be thought of in one way. And then when you become a caregiver, it's, it's very, very different. Donna, what's your experience been with that? You know, we when Zachary and I are chatting about just this very subject, we often use the word trespass. Um, sometimes, you know, in the context of parental caregiving, for example, I've been a lifelong caregiver my whole for multiple family members over the years who have serious disabilities and or serious disease and chronic illness. So I remember when my father, for example, had three strokes and lost his speech and his mobility, I was a teenager 
And my father was a decorated war hero from the Second World War. And I needed to help him in the bathroom sometimes, simply because there was no one else to do it. And I felt intensely uncomfortable in that role. And so did my father. He was devastated at this trespass on his dignity and on our previous boundaries of our relationship, as Zachary said. So these, the, this trespassing of what we hold sacred in terms of privacy, public, shared, what are the elements that are sacred in a relationship that you have to throw out? You have to throw them out and begin to reconstruct a new relationship with new boundaries. And of course, there's no guide for that. So that's mm -hmm. what's so difficult, I think, painful, complicated, often about, about intensive caregiving in the context of serious disease. I, I like the term trespass does create that visual feeling of that change in, in boundaries. And it's, it seems to me more about just this just trespass because you have you already have pre-existing roles you, as a you know maybe at work or at, at home. And so one of the issues is how do you fit caregiving into that on top of like most people are already very full. Their plates are full. How do you fit that in? I mean, you don't have a choice, but how, how do you do it? It's an ongoing challenge, isn't it, Donna? I mean, and, and, and one of them is, is that, you know, so many caregivers that we speak to in our research tells us that for many people, few acknowledge the role of caregiving in their life, which makes mm -hmm. it remarkably difficult to incorporate it in the way that you're referring to, in that care is in the back. It is, the, it is part of a relationship that becomes encompassing and it becomes overwhelming at times because the boundaries, there are no markers, as Donna was mentioning, that guide us along this way. And it's, it's insatiable. And so as time goes on, and depending on your particular care circumstances, it becomes increasingly difficult. And that notion of, you know, kind of caregiver burnout, you know, in the medical world, burnout is a common topic. But Don mm. and I talk a lot about a familial-based caregiving burnout that is oftentimes neglected and minimized because, because the private space of the home, the intimate spaces of care are typically minimized and there's all kinds of gender implications. This role is oftentimes un, you know, devalued in terms of kind of monetary equivalent, as well as the nature of the work that permeates and becomes a part of who you are without others even knowing that that is mm -hmm. part of your life role. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, we often use the visual image of a pie to represent your life. And, mm -hmm. you know, trying to fit in caregiving as a piece of the pie of your life becomes increasingly difficult as the disease process progresses. Mm -hmm. So caregiving will then eclipse other parts of your life by necessity, as Zachary said, by love and necessity. And that's when caregivers are often forced to quit their job, mm -hmm. sometimes leave their own immediate family to care for another family member in another state, Zachary, you call this the new migration, where mm. if there is no, if there are no sources for personal care or medical support in the home, then a family member must uproot and move in to where a family member in the context of melanoma, for example, disease progression, people need a lot of help to get through the day and the night. 
So you cannot have a serious illness alone. You need to have someone with you, someone who cares for you physically, but also emotionally. And so what this means is that often caregiving begins to take up the whole pie of your life. And all of a sudden, you are overwhelmed by the needs because there's no upper limit to the number of hours that caregivers can or or should work. No one is no one is saying you can you can you know punch your time card now and your job is over for the day. It 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 just simply doesn't end until the person you're caring for and the person you care about is settled, comfortable, and doesn't have an immediate (laughs) critical need for your intervention. So yeah, I think you're bringing up something really important, which is that first we have to acknowledge that that it's 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 a role that, and then I think what I just heard is that it's a role that continues to increase over time, and it feels like, and in some cases, there are no boundaries in terms of how much how much it could take up in, in your life. You know, there must be some things that make it even harder. And in in your book, you talk about the different masks people wear, and I, I thought I was really struck by that sort of the visual again the visual concept of the mask. And I think that probably creates an additional burden because we feel like we have to put on those t- types of masks. So maybe you can explain the, the types of masks that, that you describe and and how that can make it. I think, you know, a couple of the masks that we go to and and we can all remember that wearing a mask is something we all do in all parts of our lives. But there are certain recurring kind of masks that as caregivers we put on. And one of them is the fighter mask. And the fighter mask is brought about because we all respect and value people's love and passion for life. And so when threatened with illness or cancer or longstanding disease, you know, as caregivers and as the people in the midst of it, it is kind of showing others what we're doing to beat something. And so all of our, much of our cultural language around illness is, is fits within this model of fight and win and beat. And that is a very, that can be very helpful for some people. At the same time, one of the downsides of the mask, of the fighter mask, it doesn't really allow for moments of weakness and vulnerability and openness and that there are parts of life that require reflection, not fighting. It's hard to reflect when you're punching or being punched. And then another mask that Donna and I talk a lot about is the everything is okay mask. And this is the one that most of us are really good at navigating. And remember, as caregivers, whether you call yourself a caregiver or not, you're really great at changing up your mask to fit the situation the need because you're going to give people what they want. And this is one of the challenges of the mask. But the, the everything is okay mask is presenting the appearance as if everything is fine. And so that might be a physical appearance in terms of presenting yourself personally and or on social media or on Facebook, for example, which everything looks good and everything is fine. Everything is going to be okay. And that too can be powerful and useful. But the downside of the everything is okay mask is that who do you share the authenticity of your experiences with in ways that allow you and your loved one to make sense of what is happening now. Because the problem with masks is that we're so good at giving others what they need, we sometimes fall in the trap of of forgetting or even not even knowing how to explore what we need in the process. Yeah, another mask that we talk about that I can identify with, not in a good way, is the martyr mask. Hmm. And you know, every caregiver who's listening today is gonna have had someone say to them, oh, I don't know how you can do what you do. You're a saint. And, you know, 
to me, when people have said that, like I'm remembering right now, specifically when our son entered palliative care, people said that to me, even members of my own family. And I thought, so then that sort of made me want to put on a fighter mask right away. Hmm. You know, first of all, of course you would do what I do for someone you love. And, you know, in my context, it was my child. Like, are you telling me that you would abandon your child because they have cancer, serious disease, whatever, whatever? And I, I just, so that, that was very kind of triggering. Many times people don't know what to say. And the reaction that we have is that we will put on one or another of these masks in order to kind of normalize the situation. And as Zachary said, give them what they want and the conversation. <laughs> mm, mm. And so I think what, you're, what I, I'm just learning now is like, it's a different mask for a different situation. Or we're really good at that because we're trying to please other people. And I think what yeah. I'm hearing too is that there's a role for self-compassion. There's a self role for yes. authenticity here. And mm. if we can sort of adopt those things, on, it may help us get through the, the hard parts of, of that, that journey. Absolutely. And one of the tenets of self-compassion that we talk about is this idea of you know, doing something counterintuitive, and that is recognizing, and it's a difficult recognition, that family and friends prior to your diagnosis or prior to your caregiving situation may not be the sufficient audience for you. They're wonderful. They're going to be there for us perhaps long-term, but because of our distinct life experiences and caregiving responsibilities, sometimes it's so difficult for us not to want to or need to put on the mask because we have to manage mm -hmm. upcoming holidays and all that goes with mm -hmm. that that we need to reach beyond those audiences when we're most vulnerable and when life is overwhelming with care, care obligations to create opportunities to explore meanings and experiences that go beyond cliche, that don't fit neatly in masks. And this is super hard to do because so many people believe that they're betraying their family and friends that they thought would be the go-to people for everything. And, and it's such a challenging idea to think that you must reach beyond family and friends, but Don and I like to remind caregivers that that's not a betrayal. It is an addition to your network. It's not a subtraction. Yeah, that's true. And, you know, I think the other thing about, about all of this is that what we know, Zachary has been a, a caregiver. Zachary, you for your mother who had brain cancer, me for, as I said, multiple family members, my son, Nicholas, who is still living and having a great adult life despite having been on palliative care now for 14 years. He didn't die, but he has very severe disabilities and is medically complex. And my mother who had dementia and all of the caregiving, it changes us profoundly and permanently. So we can't ever expect life to go back to what it was before caregiving. I think that's something that you don't know when you're a, a, an early caregiver. You, you, you keep thinking you'll be the person you were before with a someday, someday, hopefully someday soon. In the case of a broken leg, that may be true, but it's, it's not true in the case of a disease like melanoma. You, you know, you may be walking with your loved one through a disease process that is years long and is very invasive treatment and, and it changes your life. It upends all of your expectations for your life. So 
we can't pretend that doesn't fundamentally and permanently change who we are. That, that's a great statement because I think it goes back to, we had a prior pro- podcast with Dr. Richard Zesky talking about post-traumatic growth. And you mentioned that a little bit in your, mm-hmm. your yeah. book, which is it, it's just a, pr- a profound change that happens to you with a diagnosis of cancer, or, or in this case, it's a caregiving and, and changing in roles. Tell me a little bit, because the, the resume thing I mentioned earlier in the podcast, that's also something that really struck me in, in the book, because I was thinking about how someone reviews a resume and they, they think about a job application and you really talk about this caregiver resume. I want to give you guys a chance to talk about like how you came up with that concept. And also, is it that the patient needs to look for a caregiver with a caregiver resume or is it sort of for the caregiver to reflect on themselves about whether they, you know, what are their skill sets to, to help? Well, you know, the caregiver resume is something that Zachary and I talked a lot about. I think I had blogged about it a few years ago at my blog, The Caregiver's Living Room. And originally, I think that I had thought that fundamentally, caregivers are invisible. The work that we do is in is very private. As Zachary, you said in a blog post, there are no graduation ceremonies, there are no markers of success or public validations of progression and benchmarks of progression through this role. It's like totally invisible. So it's far less visible even than parenting, which Mm. is quite private in itself. But I I started thinking, what do we learn as a caregiver? And what skills do we develop that if we looked at them as discrete skills, we would value them? We would find value in what we learn moving through this role. And so some of the things were like risk management, payroll. We, we learn to trainers of the paid caregivers. We learn to be the corporate memory and holders of the medical history sometimes of the, of the patient if the patient is very, very ill. So w- there are many things that if you, you point them out, and if anybody was listening here today and just reflected, what have I learned on this journey? And what might some skills be that I have become fairly proficient at that a business person would look at and say, wow, you know, you're committed. Mm-hmm. You, you are a team player. You know how to build and maintain commitment on your teams. All of these things that we do without really telling ourselves, you know, good on me. I've mm-hmm. done this and I've done it well. I think it's worth reminding ourselves what a hard job we're doing, what valuable skills we develop in this role, and actually use some of these skills on your CV if you've left the workplace to give care and you want to re-enter mm-hmm. the workplace later. I think it's impressive myself. <laughs> yeah, I think, Dr. White, you had a comment? Yeah, I just think that it is so important, as you said, Donna, because it is a part of the process of helping others in the workplace and beyond recognize the omnipresence of care. And part of the reason that Donna and I wrote this book was to create an affirmative vocabulary, a way of talking about experiences, because this is one of those life roles that we talked about omitted from kind of the the life role experience of dating, marriage, partnership, children, retirement, even divorce. These are things that are marked, that are clear, that, that people know how to approach that they can anticipate, they experience, and then they can talk about it. So much of the care experience, as Donna said, is in 
And just going through some of the litany of skills and competencies that Donna was talking about, I would just reinforce things like managing a team. I would, I would reinforce the idea of communication, communicating with a variety of people who have the utmost credentials like you do, doctor, as well as people who may not be verbal at all. And to be able to read situations and to adjust in moments, incredible resilience, a kind of resilience you mentioned of kind of a post-traumatic growth, a kind of resilience that is on in the flow. There is not really the luxury oftentimes for caregivers to be able to pause after an event. Events are never really before, during, and after it. They're ongoing. And so it becomes remarkably challenging. And I think for caregivers, to speak to the resume, it is a life resume that highlights values. So many of um, other resumes are kind of temporal based. They expire with outdated skills. But these are values that hold people fast and true to who they are and who they've become. Yeah. And it is a, it's a sign of both strength and capacity to adjust. And you know, it's something we're very passionate about because so many people that we deal with and talk with and listen to doubt themselves in ways that defy their situation and what they're doing. I, I think it was also great for me too, because I think in today's hiring world, people aren't looking for just like what school you graduated from. They're looking for like life skills and the life skills that you mentioned here and, and you just mentioned communication teams. I mean, I think that is, those are life skills that people are looking for. And I, Donna, I love the idea that you're saying you're building skills that you could take to your job. So it's almost like the other way around. It's it's in sort of acknowledging and, and taking this from an invisible state to something that can, can build a new self that that is, is, is noticed. I wanted to, because you mentioned communication, Dr. White. So one of the things that you mentioned also is silence. And I love that piece too, because I've learned in some of my caregiving experience that sometimes there's a, there's a natural tendency to try to fill the space with words, but sometimes just being there is, is a powerful caregiving experience. So maybe we can talk a little bit more about that. Yeah. Just part of the whole landscape of communication that I think caregivers experience that others do not do not allow themselves that opportunity because, as you say, the need to reduce uncertainty is a power, powerful motive for so many of us in our everyday lives. And so we usually tend to fill that with words and ways of categorizing situations very quickly. And caregivers across the spectrum find themselves in situations in which silence is necessity or silence is the only option. And we may too feel uncomfortable, but we see and hear and notice that which is always available to be used as meaning making, but is oftentimes omitted. Because when you want to make your point and you're trying to get something across, it's, you know, you, your peripheral vision shrinks and, and your goal or I think silence and the vernacular of caregiving is much more holistic and ecological. It is an awareness of a moment and a presence and a way of connecting with someone that doesn't need to be solidified with my way of seeing. It, it, it really brings people in. It, it is an inclusive language silence in ways different than most of the ways in which we try to one-up others or be able to highlight or assert hierarchical differences. It is it is a kind of inclusive, horizontal way of communicating that can be quite powerful. I'll give you a quick example. I spent a lot of time, my own personal experiences and professional ones in hospice, home hospice settings. And I learned this art, this practice of silence, most of the people I spent time with could not articulate in the way that you and I might know, but I found myself much more connected to people that I never shared words with. And the, prob that the problem is that when I would step outside the threshold of that door to the rest of the world, the world that made sense to other people, yeah. I no longer made sense to myself. 
because mm. this is a world outside their homes in which we exchange so much information, but I felt very misunderstood and didn't understand others very much. But in the homes and spaces, the very private spaces that no one paid attention to and overlooked, I found complete communion with people that I didn't need to know more about to understand. Hmm. Yeah, it's funny, you know, the thing that's in my mind just now is when there's some kind of an occasion where there's a moment of silence or even three minutes of silence, public silence in a group of people is a profoundly moving thing when you think about it. And I love the language you used, Zachary, of the inclusive language of silence. And I think partly it's because in the caregiving role, we really refine our values and become more and more unaligned with the values of society at large, which can be very materialistic, can be very distracting, momentarily amusing, but then it's, you know, we often are dealing with life and death situations. And so silence feels very comfortable in that space. But it is often uncomfortable for people we're not sharing that reality with. And I just wanted to mention one, I think, important point for for me and Zachary. And, you know, Zachary, when you and I wrote this book, one of the central ideas we kept coming back to was that caregivers don't have the language to describe the complexity of these experiences Mm -hmm. day to day. And Zachary, you as a professor of care communications and me as a lifelong caregiver, we wanted to try out some words that people could use to describe very complex ambivalent experience. I feel joy and grief sometimes in the sa- at the same time. All of these sort of Greek tragedy, Greek comedy portions of living in very private circumstances at home or in hospital in the context of serious disease, we don't have the language to describe mm. what's going on. <laughs> but if we did have that language, what could we do with it? That was why we wrote this book. Oh, that's a powerful statement. I think when, when you talk about silence, it also makes me think of the other phrase you used, which was caring, not curing, right? Because curing to me was sort of like the fighter mask, you know, have to say something, have to be in that external world where we're constantly communicating to try to get to a goal, as opposed to caring, which feels more like silence, like being there, being present, which feels more, you know, in a way it could be feel like a more healing process too, for the caregiver as well. It can clear a room quickly too. This is why oftentimes <laughs> it's true. I mean, people disappear when there's nothing more to do, or they don't they don't understand the the nuance of what it means to be as a type of doing, rather than feeling like they have to solve or fix something that may not be fixable in the way that they understand. It is the reason why caregivers oftentimes feel so very isolated, because it is the value shift that Don is talking about in terms of it makes people uncomfortable to be in presence of reminders about our own mortality or our own fragility. And it's it's remarkably unsettling to people, not because they're not good people, not because they're not caring people themselves, but it's not a reminder that many people feel comfortable being around. And so there is this 
kind of silent majority of caregivers in this world, in the United States in particular, all around the world that um, exist in the shadows and are finding spaces that, that, as Donna said, we're very passionate about bringing this out into the, into the forefront. And we appreciate you allowing us to speak with and uh, your audience about it because we exist and there is a value to this. And the more that we can bring this to workplaces, the more we can bring this into medical providers' spaces and recognize that caregivers have so much to offer and sh- about wisdom and insight that just begets a kind of listening to that I think creates a whole different kind of dialogue. And we're, we're getting closer, but I think we have a lot of work to do. That's a great point. I know we're at the end of our, our half an hour. It always goes by so quickly. I, I've learned so much about acknowledging, taking this invisible space and trying to create a language around it, trying to bring 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 some awareness to, to the role. Donna, do you want to close us out? Any final? Well, yes, I, I hope that people listening will, I think, forgive themselves for being an imperfect caregiver, for being the best caregiver that you can be, however that looks day after day after day. You know, I would say that whoever you are, you're looking after someone, if you're listening to this podcast, who has a diagnosis of melanoma. And, you know, all of all that we can ask of ourselves is that we do our best. And that is good enough. Thank you. Thank you so much for those this half an hour. And thank you for writing that book and 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 being active on your blogs and, and sharing with this. And I, I hope we're able to bring that awareness and acknowledgement of all the work that caregivers do. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. For more information on this topic, please visit aimandmelanoma.org. If this podcast was useful, please take a minute to subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple, Google Play, or Spotify. This podcast offers insight into the world of melanoma care, covering a range of educational, inspirational, and scientific content. You can find all shows, including this one, at aimatmelanoma.org. Aim at Melanoma is a global foundation dedicated to finding more effective treatments and ultimately the cure for melanoma. 